Section 15 of Astounding Stories of Super Science, September 1930. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Elwood. Marooned Under the Sea by Paul Ernst, Part 3. Still feeling that I could not possibly be awake in seeing actual things, I glanced around. In a corner was another of the mattress-like couches made of the thick, soft hide that seemed to be the principal fabric of the place. A few feet away was a table set with dishes of food in barbaric profusion. None of the vans looked familiar, but all appealed to the appetite. The floor was strewn with soft skins, and comfortable, carved benches were scattered about. I walked to the window and looked out. Underneath was a plot of the cream-colored grass through which ran a tiny stream. This widened at intervals into clear pools beside which were set stone benches. A hundred yards away was the edge of the square, where the regular three-storied houses began. While I was staring at this unearthly vista, still unable to think with any coherence, I heard my name called. I turned to face Stanley and the professor. Both were pale in the rose light, and Stanley limped with the pain of his bruised leg. Both had recovered from their partial suffocation as completely as had I. We thought perhaps you decided to swim back up the Rosa and leave us to our fates, said Stanley, after we had stopped plumbing each other's arms and had seated ourselves. And I thought, well, I didn't think much of anything. I replied. I was too busy straining my eyesight over the wonders of this city. Did you ever see anything like it? We haven't seen it at all, save for a view from the windows, said Stanley. All we know of the place is that a while ago we woke up in a room like this, only much smaller and less lavish. I wonder why you rate this distinction. I described the streets as I had seen them. It is impossible for me to think of them as anything but streets, it would seem as though the rock roof over all would give the appearance of a series of tunnels, but I had always the impression of airiness and openness. "'Light and heat are furnished by natural gas,' said the professor, when I remarked on the perfection of these two necessities. "'That's what makes the low roaring noise, the thousands of burning jets. But the presence of gas here isn't as unusual as the presence of air. Where does that come from?' through wandering underground mazes from some cave mouth in the Fiji Islands to the north, that would indicate that all the earth around here is honeycombed like a gigantic section of sponge. I wonder... Have you ever any idea how we were rescued? I interrupted, a little impatient of his abstract scientific ponderings. We have, said Stanley. A woman told us. We woke up to find her nursing us, gorgeous-looking thing, finest woman I've ever seen, and I've seen a good many. She didn't exactly tell us, remarked the professor, with his thin smile. Women were only interesting to him as biological studies. She drew a diagram that explained it. That tunnel, Martin, was like the outer living chamber of a submarine. We were hauled in on big glass windlasses. "'driven by gas turbines, I think. 
Once we were inside, a twenty-yard counterbalanced wall of rock was lowered across the entrance. Then the water was drained out through a well and into a subterranean body of water that extends under the entire city. And here we are. We fell silent. Here we were. But what was going to happen to us among these friendly-seeming people? And how, if ever, were we going to get back to the Earth's surface? Were questions we could not even try to answer. We ate of the appetizing food laid out on the long table. Shortly afterward, we heard steps in the corridor outside the room. A woman entered. She was ravishingly beautiful, tall, slender, but symmetrically rounded. A soft leather robe slanted upward across her breast to a single shoulder fastening and ended just above her knees in a skirt arrangement. Around her head was a regal circlet of silvery-gray metal, with a flashing bit of crystal set in the center above her broad, low forehead. She smiled at Stanley, who looked dazzled and smiled eagerly back. She pointed toward the door, signifying that we were to go with her. We did so, and we were led down a great staircase into a huge room that took up half the ground floor of the building. And here we met the nobility of the little kingdom, the upper class that governed the immaculate little city. They were standing along the walls, leaving a lane down the center of the room, tall, finely modeled men and women dressed in the single garments of soft leather. There were people there with gray hair and wisdom-wrinkled faces, but all were alike in being erect of body, firm of bearing, and in splendid health. They stopped talking as we entered the big room, our gaze strayed ahead down the lane toward the further wall. Here was a raised dais. On it was a gleaming crystal-encrusted throne, and occupying it was the most queenly, exquisitely beautiful woman I had ever dreamed about. Woman, she was just a girl in years in spite of her grave and royal air. Her eyes were deep velvet. Her hair was black as ebony and gleaming with sudden glints of light. Her skin, but she cannot be described. Only a great painter could give a hint of her glory. Too, I might truthfully be described as a prejudice about her perfections. The queen, for patiently she was that, bowed graciously at us. It seemed to me, though I told myself that I was an imaginative fool, that her eyes rested longest on me, and had in them an expression not granted to the professor or Stanley. She spoke to us in a melodious sentence or two, and waved her beautiful hand in which was a short ivory wand, evidently a scepter. "'She's probably giving us the keys to the city,' whispered Stanley. He edged nearer the fair one who had conducted us. "'I sincerely hope there's room here for us.' The open lane closed in on us. Men and women crowded about us, speaking to us, and smiling ruefully as they realized we could not understand. I noticed that, for some curious reason, they seemed fascinated by the color of my hair. Red-haired men were evidently scarce there. At length the beauty who had captured Stanley's fancy, and who seemed to have been appointed a sort of mentor for us, suggested in sign language that we might want to return to our quarters. 
It was a welcome suggestion. We were done in by the experiences and emotions that had gripped us since leaving the Rosa, such an incredibly few hours ago. We went back to the second floor, I to my luxurious big apartment, and Stanley and the professor to their smaller but equally comfortable rooms. A pleasant period slid by, every waking hour of which was filled with new experiences. The city's name, we found, was Ziobor. It was a perfect little community. There were artisans and thinkers, artists and laborers, all alike in being physically perfect beyond belief and cultured as no race on top the ground is cultured. As we began to learn the language, more exact details of the practical methods of existence were revealed to us. The surrounding earth furnished them with building materials, metals, and unlimited gas. The sea, so near to us, and yet so securely walled away, gave them food, which warrants a more detailed description. We were informed that the man-like two-armed fishes were the servants of these people, domesticated animals, in a sense, only of an extremely high order of intelligence. They were directed by mental telepathy. Every man, woman, and child in Ziobor was skilled at thought projection. They conversed constantly, from end to end of the city, by mental telepathy. Protected in their splendid shells, which they captured from the schools of porcupine fish that swarmed in penguin deep, they gathered sea vegetation from the higher levels and trapped sea creatures. These were brought into the subterranean chamber where our glass ball now reposed. Then the chamber was emptied of water, and the food was borne to the city. The vast army of moundfish provided the bulk of the population's food, and also furnished the thick, pliant skin they used for clothing and drapes. They were cultivated as we cultivate cattle, an ominous herd to be handled with care and approached by the fish servants with due caution. Thus, with all reasonable wants satisfied, with talent and brains to design beautiful surroundings, lighted and warmed by inexhaustible natural gas, these fortunate beings lived their sheltered lives in the rosy underground world. At least, I thought their lives were sheltered then. It was only later, when talking to the beautiful young queen, that I learned of the dread menace that had begun to draw near to them just a short time before we were rescued. My first impression, when we had entered the throne room that first day, that the Queen had regarded me more intently than she had Stanley or the Professor, had been right. It pleased her to treat me as an equal, and to give me more of her time than was granted to any other person in the city. Every day, for a growing number of hours, we were together in her apartment. She personally instructed me in the language, and such was my desire to talk to this radiant being that I made an apt pupil. Soon I had progressed enough to converse with her, in a stilted, incorrect way, on all but the most abstract of subjects. It was a fine language. I liked it, as I liked everything else about Zalbor. The upper earth seemed far away and well forgotten. Her name, I found, was Aga, a beautiful name. How did your kingdom begin? I asked her one day while we were setting beside one of the small pools in the gardens. We were close together. Now and then my shoulder touched hers, and she did not draw away. 
I know not, she replied. It is older than any of our ancient records can say. I am the three hundred and eleventh of the present reigning line. And we are the first to enter thy realm from the upper world? Thou art the first. There is no other entrance but the seaway into which we were drawn. There is no other entrance. I was silent, trying to realize the finality of my residence here. At the moment I didn't care much if I never got home. In the monarchies we know above, I said finally, avoiding her violet eyes, it is not the custom for the queen or king to reign alone. A consort is chosen. Is it not so here? Hast thou not, among thy nobles, some one thou hast destined? I stopped, feeling that if she dismissed me in anger and never spoke to me again, the punishment would be just. But she wasn't angry. A lovely tide of color stained her cheeks. Her lips parted, and she turned her head. For a long time she said nothing. Then she faced me, with a light in her eyes that sent the blood racing in my veins. "'I have not yet chosen,' she murmured. "'Mayhap soon I shall tell thee why.' She rose and hurried back toward the palace, but at the door she paused and smiled at me in a way that had nothing whatever to do with queenship. As the time sped by, the three of us settled into the routine of the city, as though we had never known of anything else. The professor spent most of his time down by the sea chamber, where the food was dragged in by the intelligent servant-fish. He was in a zoologist's paradise. Not a creature that came in there had ever been catalogued before. He wrote reams of notes on the parchment paper used by the citizens in recording their transactions. Particularly, he was interested in the vast, lowly mound-fish. One time, when I happened to be with him, the receding waters of the chamber disclosed the body of one of the odd herdsmen of these deep-sea flocks. Then the professor's elation knew no bounds. We hurried forward to look at it. "'It is a typical fish,' puzzled the professor, when we had cut the body out of its usurped armor. "'Cold-blooded, adapted to the chill and pressure of the depths.' There are the gills, I observed before, yet it looks very human. It surely did. There were the joined arms and the rudimentary hands. Its forehead was domed, and the brain, when dissected, proved much larger than the brain of a true fish. Also its bones were not those of a mammal, but the cartilaginous bones of a fish. It was not quite six feet long, just fitted the horny shell. But its intelligence! fretted the professor, glorying in his inability to classify this marvelous specimen. No fish could ever attain such mental development. Evolution working backward from human to reptile and then fish, or a new freak of evolutionary whereby a fish on a shortcut toward becoming human? <sighs> he sighed and gave it up, but more reams of notes were written. Why do you take them? I asked. No one but yourself will ever see them. He looked at me with professorial absent-mindedness. I take them for the fun of it, principally, but perhaps sometime we may figure out a way of getting them up. My God, wouldn't my learned brother scientists be set in an uproar? 
he bent his observations and dissections again, cursing now and then at the distortion suffered by the specimens when they were released from the deep sea pressure and swelled and burst in the atmospheric pressure in the cave. Stanley was engrossed in a different way. Since the moment he laid eyes on her, he had belonged to the stately woman who had first nursed him back to consciousness. Myas was her name. From shepherding the three of us around Zyobor and explaining its marvels to us, she had taken to exclusive tutorship of Stanley, and Stanley fairly ate it up. "'You, the notorious woman-hater,' I taunted him one time, "'the wary bachelor, to fall at last, and for a woman of another world, almost of another planet, I'm amazed!' "'I don't know why you should be amazed,' he said stiffly. "'You've been telling me ever since I was a kid that women were all useless, all alike. "'If I find I was mistaken,' he interrupted, "'they aren't all alike. "'There's only one Myas. She is different. "'What do you talk about all the time? You're with her constantly.' "'I'm not with her any more than you're with the Queen,' he shot back at me. "'What do you find to talk about?' "'That shut me up. "'He went to look for Myas, and I wandered to the royal apartments in search of Aga.' In the first days of our friendship I had several times surprised in Aga's eyes a curious expression, one that seemed compounded of despair, horror, and resignation. I had seen that same expression in the eyes of the nobles of late, and in the faces of all the people I encountered in the streets, who, I mustn't forget to add here, never failed to treat me with a deference that was as intoxicating as it was inexplicable. It was as though some terrible fate hovered over the populace, some dreadful doom about which nothing could be done. No one put into words any fears that might confirm that impression, but continually I got the idea that everybody there went about in a state of attempting to live normally and happily while life was still left, before some awful wholesale death descended on them. At last, from Aga, I learned the fateful reason. But first, a confession that was hastened by the knowledge of the fate of the city, I learned from her something that changed all of life for me. We were surrounded by the luxury of her private apartment. We sat on a low divan, side by side. I wanted more than anything I had ever wanted before to put my arms around her, but I dared not. One does not make love easily to a queen, the three hundred and eleventh of a proud line. And then, as maids have done often in all countries, and perhaps on all planets, she took the initiative herself. We have a curious custom in Zybor, of which I have not yet told thee, she murmured. It concerns the kings of Zybor, the color of their hair. She glanced up at my own carrot-top, and then averted her gaze. For all our history, our kings have had red hair. On the few occasions when the line has been reduced to a lone queen, as in my case, the red-haired men of the kingdom have striven together in public combat to determine which was the most powerful and brave. The winner became the queen's consort. And in this case, I asked, my heart beginning to pound madly, in my case, my lord, there is to be no, no striving. 
When I was a child, our only two red-haired males died, one by accident, one by sickness. Now there are none others but infants, none of eligible age, but by miracle. Thou... She stopped, then gazed up at me from under long, gold-flecked lashes. I was afraid. I was doomed to die. Alone. It was after I had replied impetuously to this that she told me of the terror that was about to engulf all life in the beautiful undersea city. Thou hast wondered, perhaps, why I should be forward enough to tell thee this, instead of waiting for thine own confession first, she faltered. Know, then, the reason is the shortness of the time we are fated to spend together. We shall belong each to the other only a little while. Then shall we belong to death, and I, when I knew the time was to be so brief, and I listened with growing horror to her account of the enemy that was advancing towards us with every passing moment. About twenty miles away, in the lowest depression of Penguin Deep, lived a race of monsters which the people of Aga's city called Quabos. The Quabos were grim beings that were more intelligent than Aga's fish servants, even, she thought, more intelligent than humans themselves. They had existed in their dark hole, as far as the Ziobites knew, from the beginning of time. Through the countless centuries they had constructed for themselves a vast series of dens in the rock. There they had hidden away from the deep-sea dangers. They, too, preyed on the mound-fish, but as there was plenty of food for all, the Zaobites had never paid much attention to them. But, just before we had appeared, there had come about a subterranean quake that changed the entire conflection of the matters in Penguin Deep. The earthquake wiped out the elaborately burrowed sea-tunnels of the Quabos, killing half of them at a blow and driving the rest out into the unfriendly openness of the deep. Now this was fatal to them. They were not used to physical self-defense. During the thousands of years of residence in their sheltered burrows, they had become utterly unable to exist when exposed to the primeval dangers of the sea. It was as though the civilization-softened citizens of New York should suddenly be set down in a howling wilderness with nothing but their bare hands with which to contrive all the necessities of a living. Such was the situation at the time Stanley, the professor, and myself arrived in Zyobor. The Quabos must find an immediate haven or perish. On the ocean bottom they were threatened by the moundfish. In the higher levels they were in danger from almost everything that swam. Few things were so defenseless as themselves after their long inertia. Their answer was Zyobor, there in perfect security, only to be reached by the diving chamber that could be sealed at will by the twenty-yard counterbalanced lock. The Quabos would be even more protected than in their former runways. So, they were working day and night to invade Aga's city. But, Aga, I interrupted impulsively at this point, if these monsters are fishes, how could they live in air? I stopped as my objection answered itself before she could reply. They would not have to live in air to inhabit Zyobor. They would inundate the city, 
flood that peaceful, beautiful place with the awful pressure of the lowest depths. That thought, in turn, suggested to me that every building in Zyobor would be swept flat if subjected suddenly to the rush of the sea. The great low cavern, without the support of the myriad of walls, would probably collapse, trapping the invading Quabos and leaving the rest without home once more. But Ega answered this before I could voice it. The Quabos had foreseen that point. They were tunneling slowly but surely toward the city from a point about half a mile from the dividing chamber, and as they advanced, they blocked up the passageway behind them at intervals, drilled down to the great underground sea that lay beneath all this section, and drained a little of the water away. In this manner they lightened, bit by bit, the enormous weight of the ocean depths. When the city was finally reached, not only would it be insured against sudden destruction, but the Quabos themselves would have become accustomed to the difference in pressure. Had they gone immediately from the accustomed press of Penguin Deep into the atmosphere of Zyobor, they would have burst into bits. As it was, they would be able to flood the city slowly without injury to themselves. Now thou knowest our fate, concluded Ega with a shudder. Zyobor will be part of the great waters. We ourselves shall be food for these monsters. She faltered and stopped. But this cannot be, I exclaimed, clenching my fists impatiently. There must be something we can do, some way. There is nothing to be done. Our wisest men have set themselves sheepishly to the task of defense. There it is no defense possible. We can't simply sit here and wait. Your people are wonderful, but this is no time for resignation. Send for my two friends, Aga. We will have a council of war, for we four, and we will see if we can find a way. She shrugged despairfully, started to speak, and then sent in quest of Stanley and the professor. They, as well as myself, had no idea of the menace that crept nearer us with each passing hour. They were dumbfounded, horrified to learn of the peril. We sat a while in silence, realizing our situation to the full. Then the professor spoke. If only we could see what these things look like. It might help in planning to defeat them. That can be done with ease, said Ega. Come. We went with her to the gardens and approached the nearest pool. My fishmen are watching the Quabos constantly. They report to me by telepathy whenever I send my thoughts their way. I will let you see on the pool the things they are now seeing. She stared intently at the sheet of water, and gradually as we watched a picture appeared, a picture that will never fade from my memory in any smallest detail. The Quabos had huddled for protection into a large cave at the foot of the cliff outside Zyobor. There were a great many Quabos, and the cave was relatively confining. Now we saw, through the eyes of the spine-protected outpost of the Queen, these monstrous refugees crowded together like sheep. The watery cavern was a creeping mass of viscous tentacles, enormous staring eyes and globular heads. The cave was paved three deep with the horrible things, and they were attached to the wall and to the roof in solid blocks. My God! 
whispered Stanley. There are thousands of them. End of section 15. Recording by Richard Elwood.